So this reading is Matthew chapter 9, 14 to 35, and it's page 1034 in the Pew Bibles. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came upon him, came behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And a report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Good morning, everyone. You get the new kid today. And so I think it's uh, very appropriate uh, that we pray that God help us, um, and particularly me, uh, this morning. So please pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we know that it is you who works through your word. You and your spirit speak to us through the Bible. So help us this morning as we read this section of Matthew, that we may see what it is you would have us see. Show us clearly the image of Jesus so that we may know him and that we may know you. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to start uh, with a question. How do you know when something new is happening? In typical St. John's fashion, I'm going to start with a little story, right? So in the mid-1840s, the UK was going through railway mania. Railway was a new and booming form of transportation, and I think more importantly, an exciting investment. 
There was a grand promise of getting rich early, or for early investors. Uh, but over the last few decades, Europe had actually seen its fair share of markets emerge out of nowhere and then bust. And so people were a little bit skeptical. This new exciting railway mania, is this legit? Uh, one public economist, Charles McKay, he a few years just before that had wrote a book on economic bubbles. It's considered the first of the time, so people asked him, what do you think? And being a bit of a self-proclaimed expert, he wrote in his own newspaper, this time is different. This wasn't just a bubble waiting to pop, the world was changing. He knew the signs, he'd asked all the right questions, he'd done his research, it's not just a bubble, he said. And then in 1846, the bubble pops. Railway mania ends, interest rates go up, loans are too expensive, and in a few short months, the industry becomes a fraction of what it was a few years beforehand. People who invested heavily lost their savings, they lost their houses, people lost jobs, families couldn't afford to feed themselves. And in modern economic literature, Charles McKay stands as a famous case for the failure to see the bubble that he's living right in the middle of, right? He's the expert. And that raises the question, how do you know when you're living in the middle of something new? What does it look like? A bit like railway mania, how can you tell when the hype is true? What are the signs? And we've been seeing something like that in the Gospel of Matthew so far. What Jesus is doing is new, and the world is changing. So if you flick back to chapter 4, Matthew's already told us, he quoted Isaiah, chapter 4, verse 15 and 17. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death... On them has the light dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew has been showing us through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and Jesus' ministry of mercy, chapters 8 and 9, that a new morning has dawned. The long-awaited for chosen Messiah has come. Light has entered the world, bringing new teaching, grand healing, powerful demonstrations of authority, and a message of a new kingdom. And anyone living through this time, when this world is changing, well, they have questions. Is this legit? What does it look like? And so people have come to ask Jesus about the new way. And that's where our reading actually picks up this morning. The disciples of John the Baptist have come to ask something that feels a little bit out of place. In the middle of great healings, the calming of storms, we have a question about fasting. Verse 14, the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The disciples of John have a question and they're a bit stumped and they've got a bit of an ax to grind. To the people living in that place, John the Baptist was a great prophet, the first they'd seen in a very long time. Not very, not very long ago, right, John came preaching 
in the wilderness, let's say our version of miles kind of out in Queensland. He was preaching repentance and baptism and the impending kingdom of heaven. And people by the thousands every weekend took the bus trip out to hear the message, repent. And they listened. Many were baptized, they turned from their sin, and they eagerly awaited of the coming of the kingdom. They started living the most upright and godly lives they could think of while they waited. Right? They went above and beyond. No meat, no wine, voluntary fasting every day of the week. If God was going to bring this kingdom, in their eyes, they needed their prayers to be as pure as possible. And they did everything they could think of. And John's disciples now see Jesus is coming. He's also proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, but his disciples are not doing the same thing that they are. And now Jesus is even feasting with tax collectors and sinners. You have to imagine that who he's eating with is much behind the question as what he's doing. Jesus, what's going on? And he's got three images for them. And the first one, the bridegroom metaphor. Jesus answered them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus says it's not the right time. He's been reading Ecclesiastes. For everything there is a season, and now is a celebration. It's a wedding. Jesus uses an image that God uses in the prophets to describe his relationship with Israel, particularly God's restoration of Israel, God is the broom, and he's redeeming his bride. Jesus says, well, here I am. The groom is here. It's not appropriate for them to fast, because you don't fast at a wedding, you celebrate. And so why aren't John's disciples celebrating? And you'll notice what Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say, "Ah, me and my disciples never need to fast. After all, part of the law And Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he kept it. But what they're asking about goes above and beyond what the law had commanded. They had added to it. But God doesn't give you extra righteousness points for the keeping of rules, and especially not ones that you made up. That's part of the gospel that he's come to preach. Their righteousness is actually going to come through faith. And again, Jesus is not against fasting. In the Sermon on the Mount, he corrects what it should properly look like. Don't make a big show of it. Do it in secret. Not like the Pharisees and John's disciples are doing. Everyone can see that. But fasting is about prayer. And Jesus even sets the expectation that when he leaves, they're going to pick the practice back up. We see that in Acts, and now is not the time for that. It's a celebration. Eat up. And help clarify the picture, gives them two more images, 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If, if it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." You know, sometimes when I'm a bit tired and my brain is sleepy, it it bothers me that Jesus doesn't just say straight, what do you mean? Please keep it simple. And in those moments, I forget how completely dense we as people are. 
Do you recall the last time we heard from John the Baptist in Matthew? You can flick back in your Bibles. It's in chapter 3. What's the scene there? The heavens are opened, the Spirit of God visibly descends, and an audible voice proclaims, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Many more times throughout the Gospel does John the Baptist affirm Jesus as much more important than he is. How much simpler could it have been than that? And so the question kind of hanging in the air is how are there any disciples of John left? Why are they not all disciples of Jesus by now? It's because they didn't listen. They didn't listen to John. They didn't listen to the voice from heaven. Not really. Not about who Jesus is. They didn't get the simple and obvious, so he has to give them pictures. A bit like talking to children. And so the, the garment and the wineskins, it's actually really nice and simple. You can't take what's old and join it with what's new, or else it breaks. New cloth patch on old, worn-out cloth, it causes a bigger tear. New wine in old wineskins, well, it's not going to work. The fermentation process causes the old skins to burst, and you've now wasted them both. It has to be new. And so what's going on here with the fasting? Well, there's something new going on. We need new wineskins, we need new understandings of worship and prayer, and this over and above voluntary fasting isn't going to cut it. It's going to burst the wineskins. And so what's the new thing? It's the thing that Jesus has been proclaiming right up until this point. It's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here, and it's not like the old kingdom of Jerusalem. It's not of this world. It's actually spiritual. And how they think worship is done, well, that has to change too. The new covenant's not going to be like the old one, and the disciples need to start learning this now so that it sinks in. They need to get all of this extra fasting stuff. Uh, it's not going to cut it. Now's actually time for celebration. God's with them. And if they don't get it now... It's going to cause problems. Jesus is going to go away. He's going to give them the same mission he's on, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And if they have this idea in their head, that righteousness, that God's approval comes from the things that I do, then they're going to have serious problems. They're going to miss the good news of the kingdom. And so they don't do it. They celebrate all of Matthew chapter 8 and 9 has been continually contrasting different groups of people amidst grand miracles and even this simple question of fasting. It's about showing us who's in the new kingdom and who's out. Faith in Jesus, that is like the defining line. It isn't repentance. It isn't baptism. It isn't the keeping of the law, and it's certainly not church attendance. It's the response to the king. And I think you see that in the disciples of John. They repented. They were baptized. The Pharisees kept the law, and still, they don't see the king. When we put faith first... All of those things flow out out of love and obedience.
to our King who has shown us mercy. But that's the thing we have to start with. That's the defining line. It's actually faith and response to the King. Faith in who Jesus is, faith in what He said, faith in what He's done. And otherwise, we're actually going to be confused like John's disciples. We're going to be looking at the wrong things. We've got all these questions about religious practices, and we miss the big glaring picture of what God has already done and what He's actually doing right now. Jesus' response to them, their question about fasting, is that there's something new here. I am here, and He's come to bring new life. And this sets the perspective for the next four healings. Jesus demonstrates that our response to him is where new life can be found, and he starts with the biggest request yet. Verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. The ruler has seen that there's something new in Jesus. Here's the power to heal, and he hopes he's right, that this can work now. But this is different. This is, this is huge. This little girl is dead. And the ruler is doing the only thing he can think of in utter desperation and hope. He's coming to Jesus. And so they set off, and, and immediately on the way, the focus is shifted. Someone else, too, is in desperate need of help, but they're not as confident to come directly to Jesus and ask in front of everyone. Verse 20, Behold, a woman who suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Matthew gives us this, this other slice of a story, a miracle in three verses of a woman who is suffering and in need of help. We're given very few details about this woman, but the details we have tell us a lot about what life must have been like. In her condition, she is suffering, ceremonially unclean, not allowed inside the temple for worship. She is an outsider kept at a distance. She would have been driven poor after years and years of seeking medical treatment. Nothing has worked, but she's heard of the healing that has been given to those who come to Jesus, and she hopes that he can give her new health. And you can almost see the scene of this timid woman, too afraid to come up to Jesus, and this big crowd of men, right? The ruler and Jesus' disciples, they're all on their way, and so she comes up behind him, and not even willing to touch him directly, like she causes a scene, she touches the corner of his robe. And in a sizable crowd, they mightn't have even known that she was there. Jesus wouldn't have even felt the touch on the robe, but he doesn't need to, because that's not what's actually important to him. Verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman is made well. Jesus sees her faith. She didn't call out to him and make a big scene. In faith, she takes the smallest and bravest action she can. And he affirms her and he comforts her. Take heart, daughter. And he heals her. Your faith has made you well. 
This woman is given new health and Jesus sees her faith. Jesus doesn't need any preparation time. This is all initiated by the woman and powerfully and instantly she is healed. Jesus isn't made unclean by coming into contact with her, but she receives new health. This account of this woman is an amazing encouragement for those of us who are too afraid to come to God sometimes, who feel like he doesn't see us. Even though you may hide yourself from the world, you are known to Christ. He sees all of your secret prayers. He knows your faith, even if it is weak, even if others can't discern it, and even if you're ready to give up on it, your faith is known to Christ. So please hear his words, take heart. And the scene ends. And we're right back to where we were, and Jesus is back on his mission, and he needs to keep moving. Verse 23. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making the commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Jesus has practically burst into a funeral and announced, this girl is not dead. Of course she is. People know the difference between alive and dead. And this word laughed here, it's not a chuckle of confusion. Jesus, what do you mean? No, they scorn him. They're laughing at him for the ridiculous thing he's just said. She's gone and they've already begun to mourn. These flute players, these professional wailers, that's what you did as part of the mourning process. And we can see that they've actually offered no comfort to this man who's lost his daughter. And he sought to place his hope elsewhere. And Jesus has not come too late because he's a healer even after death. He is the resurrection and the life. And his authority extends even over the dead. To him, this little girl's condition is like sleeping that can be woken from. And so he does in verse 25. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the little girl arose. And the report of this ran all throughout the district. See the power of Christ on full display here? The authority to raise even the dead. And so easily too, he just takes her by the hand and she gets up. This ruler has sought to place his hope in Jesus, and it has been delivered. But Matthew wants you to see here that something greater than just one resurrection is happening. Here we see the true hope in the face of despair. This little girl was raised from the dead. She still died long ago. She may have lived a full life after this miracle. Death still loomed. Age gets us in the end. And this is where the far greater hope is to us today. The hope that extends is not actually one of just physical healings for the world that we live in and now, but it's one of an eternal resurrection of the promise from Christ. There is new life to be found in the kingdom because the king has the power to do it. Here we see the promise of God is not actually to raise our loved ones from the dead if we pray hard enough, if we have the right magical words, if you have enough faith. I think we've painfully learned that lesson in the city recently. That's not the promise. This is meant to be a demonstration of power and authority to prove what Jesus claims, 
You're meant to have a hope in the greater promise when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and lives shall never die. This is actually where our hope is found, not in comfortable life here on this earth, not in healings here and now, but of the promise of forgiveness of sins, of peace, of eternal life and resurrection with our God. And now at this point, you might be fair and thinking, all right, Jesus, fantastic, you've done it, we got the point, thank you, end of the day, you can go home and rest now. And I think he starts to, but verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Jesus said to them, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. I'm sure you've had a day like this too. It doesn't seem to end. You feel like work follows you home. Well, for Jesus, work has literally followed him home. And how do you feel after a big day like this? You're cooked and the kids are begging for something. Friends need something. Commitments are left unfinished. The day keeps going. What would you do here if you were Jesus? You'd probably say, not today, tomorrow, that's enough for now. I need to rest. Or worse, we might snap and lose our temper. This is the kind of day that's happening to Jesus. And these men have not just encountered him in the street, right? They've yelled after him. They've cried out very publicly, very loudly, the entire time home. They've followed him into this house and they don't even wait outside. They come right on in, no personal space for Jesus. And he says to them, do you believe I'm able to do this? Do you have faith? And they say, yes, Lord. And then verse 29, what does he do? He touches their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame all throughout the district. He heals them. He shows patience and grace and mercy on them. They've seen who Jesus is, but now the light has reached into their darkness of their eyes and they're given new sight to see. There is no bad timing for Jesus. His door is always open. And such is the tenderness of our King that their boldness is not actually greater than his mercy. He desires people to come to him and put their faith in him and the timing does not matter to him. Like he teaches his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives to those who have begged from him. He gives them new sight. And his healing of them is not due to the size of their faith. It's in response to this. And concerned about the commotion that this has caused, the confusion about what he's come to do, he sternly warns them, don't tell anyone. Don't, don't tell anyone. And they don't listen. They're so excited. They're so joyful. They spread his fame throughout the whole district. And isn't that interesting? That Jesus, who's able to search out man's hearts, who knows what they're thinking and feeling, he must have known how they were going to respond. He must have known that they would have disobeyed him. 
He sternly warned them, don't do it. They've drawn, they've demonstrated faith, humility, perseverance to their Lord, and straight away they disobey him. But even knowing that, he has still showed grace to them. All of these people, and many more to come, have come to him and been given new life. All of these miracles are a demonstration that he's been trying to teach them about who he is, about what the kingdom of heaven is. And the day's not over. Matthew gives us one final miracle to complete the picture of the new kingdom. Verse 32, as they were going away, it keeps going, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. We've already had quite a few healings and quite a few exorcisms by Jesus at this point. And keen listeners are actually already aware of his authority over creation and his authority over the supernatural. And so what is the reason that Matthew has included this account specifically? Why is this not kind of lumped in with Jesus healing the many, like we see at the end of chapter 8 and we're going to see at the end of chapter 9. I think there's two reasons. I think the first one is the crowd's reaction. You see it, never was anything like this seen in all of Israel. No, I'm sorry, it's not up on the board for you. I'll have to read it in your Bible. If it's not done in Israel then it's nowhere in the world because this is God's people. God is with them. If not here, then nowhere else. The crowd is able to see that something new is here. And Matthew wants all of us to see it too. This man is given speech and life free of demonic possession. Jesus continues to make things new in a way that they have not seen before, never in Israel. And the second, he's specifically showing us that the work that Jesus is doing is to fulfill what has been written in Scripture. So he quotes from Isaiah 53, 35, got them backwards, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This healing is the most tangible image that he can give us of the promised king coming. The lame, the blind, the deaf, a resurrection, all of this newness rolled together in one chapter. And later, when even John the Baptist hasn't got it, hasn't got the picture, are you the person that we're waiting for? He tells them this very thing. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. Look at how I heal people. Look at how I bring new life. I am bringing this new kingdom with me. And those who don't like what they're seeing have a hard time giving an account for it. Verse 34, but the Pharisee said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. I see the great irony here that the blind men who are able to see who Jesus is, but those who are supposed to know better, well, they actually close their eyes They make themselves mute and dumb and sticking their fingers in their ears. And they pretend like they don't see. This isn't what we wanted from God. And so they pretend it comes from somewhere else. 
Pharisees' explanation doesn't make any sense. When they've had no convincing account for the miracles, they've said, oh, it must be evil. So consumed by jealousy, they tear down what God has been building up. John the Baptist's disciples, who've asked this question, and the Pharisees should have been watching and listening. And if they had, they would have seen the kingdom that they'd been waiting for. Verse 35, our final one, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. The whole point of these testimonies about Jesus' healings and miracles and teachings, that to give you a clear, unobstructed view of the new thing that's coming into the world, to the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand, and it's good news for those who come to the king in faith. Jesus, as God's appointed king, is making things anew. That's what these miracles are for. They're to show you the power and the authority that has been given so you will listen to him, that you will seek new spiritual and eternal life through faith in the Son. The call of, the Matthew, the call of Matthew's gospel is to come to the King. And so let us do that. Let us follow the King. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kingdom that you have called us into. And we thank you for the king that you have set over it. Thank you for the great promises that Jesus has made and the certainty of new life that is found through him. Help us to come and follow him as our king. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.